when we're tempted with sin, we can, uh, we can think that the consequences of sin aren't that great because there's a simple formula. Sin, repent, and be forgiven. You know, if we fall into this temptation, it's not that big of a deal. We know that the Lord has promised anyone who would ask for forgiveness, forgiveness. And so we tell ourselves, uh, it's not that big of a deal if we do something wrong, if we do something evil, because all we have to do is sin, repent, and be forgiven. In reality, though, that is not a form- an easy formula at all. For that second step, repent, is an incredibly difficult step. See, the reason that we sinned in the first place wasn't just because we made a, a miscalculation or misremembered something. The reason that we sin is because we are evil. And that sin that came out of us was a reflection of some wickedness that was in our heart. So therefore, there's no real reason that you could have some kind of guarantee or expectation that in the coming hours or days, whatever part of you that was evil and perverse and caused you to sin before is going to change such that you could then sincerely repent and get that forgiveness from the Lord. And so it is for many people throughout history that they have understood the consequence of their sin. They may have known that their sin was self-destructive. They may have known that they were losing their relationships in their life because of their sinful habits. Even most importantly, they might have known that their sin merited the wrath of God. And they were afraid of that. Yet that recognition and that fear is not enough to bring one to repentance. And so there have been many people throughout history who know that they should repent, would really like to repent in a sense, but alas, they are evil, they are a slave to their sin, and so they are unable to summon that sincere repentance. Sure, they could feign a prayer to God and to others, and maybe they'll deceive themselves. But if they're honest, they know that the Lord sees through their fake prayer. They know that the Lord sees their love of sin. Uh, This sad state that many are in, even us often are in, uh, Shakespeare reflects well in the play Hamlet. And if you forget uh, senior year English class, uh, the conflict of Hamlet begins with Uh, the recently deceased ghost of the Prince of Denmark, Hamlet's father, appears to him. It's kind of confusing because his father is also Hamlet. I'll call him Hamlet the Elder. And then the younger, the the main character, he's Hamlet the Younger. Anyways, his deceased father appears to him as a ghost and tells him that he didn't die by natural causes. Rather, it was young Hamlet's uncle, Claudius, the elder Hamlet's brother, who killed him in order to take the throne and take his wife. And now, being that we're not too sure if ghosts exist, and if they do exist, if they're reliable sources of information, we, like Hamlet, don't know if we should believe this ghost. And so it goes on throughout the first two acts, wondering what should Hamlet do? Should he take revenge? Is there even any revenge to be taken? And all of that uh, confusion is cleared away in Act 3, Scene 3. And yes, this is a spoiler, but it's been out for 500 years now. If you haven't read it by now, you had your chance. Uh, So the the confession, the mystery is solved here with uh, Claudius' prayer of confession, or rather his prayer of attempted confession. Listen to this. Oh, my offense is rank. It smells to heaven. It has the primal eldest curse upon a brother's murder. Pray can I not. Though inclination be as sharp as will, 
my stronger guilt defeats my strong intent. And like a man to double business bound, I stand and pause where I shall first begin, and both neglect. What if this cursed hand were thicker than itself with brother's blood? Is there not rain enough in the sweet heavens to wash it white as snow? Where too serves mercy but to confront the visage of offense? And what's in prayer but this twofold force to be foresawed ere we come to fall, or pardoned being down? Then I'll look up, my fault is past. But oh, what form of prayer can serve my turn? Forgive me my foul murder? That cannot be. Since I am still possessed of those effects for which I did the murder, my crown, my own ambition, and my queen, may one be pardoned and retain the offense? In the corrupted currents of this world, offense's gilded hand may shove by justice, and oft has seen the wicked prize itself buys out the law. But tis not so above, there is no shuffling, there the action lies in his true nature, and we ourselves compelled even to the teeth and forehead of our faults to give an evidence. What then, what rests? Try what repentance can, what can it not? Yet what can it when one cannot repent? O wretched state, O bosom black as death, O limed soul that struggling to be free art more engaged, help angels, make a say, bow stubborn knees and hearts with strings of steel, be soft as sinews of the newborn babe. All may be well. The nation of Israel was a lot like Claudius throughout its history. From its very beginning, it had been a sinful, idolatrous people. And the Lord had been very explicit with them that if they continued in their sin and idolatry, He would punish them. They would be destroyed. They would lose everything. And if they would just repent, if they would just return to the Lord, they would be forgiven and all would be well. And I'm sure this scared many of the people of Israel. And they thought, well, we really should clean up our act. We really should start obeying the Lord. Stop being so idolatrous. But they were unable to repent. Time and time again, they would sin and the Lord would warn them about what would come. Yet they were evil. They were slave to their sins such that they never did repent. And eventually the word of the Lord came true. They were destroyed people of Judah were conquered by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. and they were taken off into exile. After 70 years in exile, many of them, by the Lord's mercy, came back to the land of Israel. And it is to that setting that the prophet uh, Zechariah spoke in about 500 B.C. And yet, uh, you know, different circumstances, but same problem. The people of Israel were sinful And the Lord told them that if they continued in their sin, they would be punished. But they could not repent. And even at the the beginning of the book of Zechariah, God says to Israel, return to me and I will return to you. A blessed promise, but one easier said than done. Israel was enslaved to their sin. They would not repent. They still to this day have not repented. And what we see this morning though, in Zechariah 12, 10 to 14, is the hope for Israel. The hope that though they might have cold hearts right now who could not shed one tear for their sin, one day by the Lord's grace, they will see their sin. The full evil of it. That it resulted in the death of their Messiah. The death of their God. And by the Lord's grace, their hearts will finally break. They will finally repent. And in that repentance, indeed, the Lord will return to them and He will forgive them all their sin. We are not the people of Israel uh, 
the actions described here will not apply to us directly. But nevertheless, the same basic things in here, the nature of their sin, the way that they repent, the blessings that come from us, that all applies to us. Just poured out on us, the church, in a slightly different way. And so the first thing that we will concern ourselves with this morning is that sin that Israel will recognize that they have done. It's there in verse 10, just a couple phrases. When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. This is, of course, a a description that Israel, in some way, pierced God. Something unthinkable. And indeed, it is the crime of crimes. And as we look at this, that, that is the point that I'll call this, the crime of crimes. And this is a confusing passage, but it's one according to Mark Twain's maxim that it's not the parts of the Bible that he doesn't understand that bother him. It's the parts of the Bible that he does understand that bothers him. And indeed, that's the case with this verse. It's very clear what it says. The Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is speaking here. He's the only one speaking in this whole section. It could not be anyone else. Nevertheless, so he says to them that they will look at me, the speaker, God himself, and while looking at him, they will recognize that they pierced him. And that word for pierced, it's uh, one of a number of words, different Hebrew words, it's translated into English as pierced, but this one is a especially violent one, it could be translated stabbed. It's the word that's used to describe having a spear thrust, to, thrust through someone's body. To pardon the image, it's the word for skewering somebody. And so this is the very strange, disturbing picture that's presented, is that Israel will look at God, and they will recognize that somehow they stabbed him, they pierced him through, and even unto death. Uh, This word in the Bible is never used and someone survives. It's always uh, a mortal wound to have something uh, struck through your body like that. And so how is it then that God is pierced? Some people in in Zechariah's day may have taken it as a metaphorical thing. Oh, someday we'll realize that the emotional toll we've put on the Lord with all our sin, it, it will have been like we skewered him through the pain. The emotional pain will be so severe. That might have been how some took it. Most, however, took it the way the New Testament does. That some figure, some human figure who was very closely related to the Lord, he was the one who was stabbed. He was the one who was pierced unto death. And the the Lord was so closely related with this human figure that it was like God himself was pierced. And people, Jews of that time, they gave a number of different options of who that character could be. But the most obvious one, and the one that fits with the book of Zechariah, is that it's the Messiah. The Messiah has been a uh, recurrent character throughout the book of Zechariah. There's a lot of prophecies of Jesus in this uh, book. And even in chapter 13, it says that the Lord's shepherd, uh, the Messiah, he is going to be struck down by a sword. So it does seem very much that it is the Messiah who is pierced, and by the Messiah being pierced, God Himself is pierced. And the people of Israel, they might not have been able to put all those details quite together, how it is that when the Messiah is pierced, when He dies, God Himself can say that He was pierced. But John, uh, the Apostle, he gives us that answer. It was 
read earlier in the scripture reading, so if you want to just go ahead and listen to me, John says this here at the end of his crucifixion account, and the language he uses here, there's hardly anything else in the Bible that's said so earnestly. Um, it, it makes you, you think, what, what would be the great doubt? What is so astounding about this that John has to insist that he really saw this? And so I'll, I'll begin in, in verse 34 of John 19. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And then he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. John says, I have the interpretation of Zechariah 12.10. I know how it is that the eternal, immutable, impassable God was pierced. It happened in this way. That man who walked amongst us, that carpenter from Galilee, Jesus, the man who was thirsty like us, who wept like us, who was crucified at the hands of cruel men, he was not just a man. He was not just the Son of God by name, but in being, in nature, he was the Son of God, such that when Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, when he had the spear pushed through his side, God himself was having a spear pushed through his side. God, being who He is, cannot be the victim of our hatred and our malice. You cannot harm the eternal God. He is who He is apart from you. Uh, to use C.S. Lewis's language, you'll be as effective harming God as an insane person would be effective at uh, darkening the sun by writing darkness on the walls of his cell. You cannot touch Him. He cannot be your victim. He is God and you are not. And being so infinite and transcendent above us, there was something that He could not do. He could not suffer for us. He was too far above us to suffer on our behalf. And yet that was precisely what we needed. And so that was the reason He became a man. To do what He could not do before. To be the victim of our malice. To die. To be hated. To suffer to be pierced in His side. And so that is what we see at the death of Jesus. It's the death of God. God's nature does not die uh, when Jesus dies, but He who was the God-man, He did die. And so it is correct to say that at that moment, God Himself was pierced unto death. And this is indeed astounding. It is the crime of all crimes. It is the culmination of all of our hatred and sin towards the Lord. And so the God-man died. He's the one who was pierced. But the next question then that comes is, how is it that Israel is guilty of piercing God? Of killing Him in this way? Uh, technically speaking, it was just one Roman soldier who put the spear through Jesus' side. How is it that all of Israel will feel so incredibly guilty for that one man's act? Well, of course, it was the Jewish leaders who arrested Jesus. Uh, it was them who sentenced him in their own court to death. It was the Jewish crowds there in Jerusalem who cried out, Barabbas, Barabbas, and then later, crucify him, crucify him. And when he was sentenced to death, though some might have said that they supported the Messiah, yet no one was found to defend him. No one spoke up. 
none but Pilate's wife. But even more than that, what, what happened that day, even for the people who did not exist at the time, Jews today, Jews 4,000 years ago, people in Israel who might have had no idea about what was happening in Jerusalem. How is it that they all bear the guilt that, of the events that happened that day? It's because what happened that day was in accordance with the way that Israel had always treated the Lord and the ones that He had sent. They had always treated the Lord with disdain, with malice. Ever since Eden, that's what we've been doing. And so what the Jewish leaders did to Christ that day, though not everyone might have been involved directly, they did it on all of our behalf. On all of Israel's behalf. Indeed, as as Stephen says in his speech in Acts 7, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. No one in Israel can honestly say that, oh, well, what the Jewish leaders did was apart from their own wishes and desires. They have proved time and time again throughout their history that they care nothing for God, nothing for His prophets. And they will do whatever is necessary to remove His authority from their lives. To return again to my high school uh, English senior year lit class, um, the Brothers Karamazov uh, demonstrates this point uh, uniquely as well and poignantly. Uh, The basic conflict of that book is that there are three main brothers, Karamazov, and their father, the father Karamazov, uh, he has been murdered. And it seems that it's one of the three brothers who is guilty for their father's murder. And so that's the the main mystery throughout the book that you're following along. And once again, I'm going to spoil this book. It hasn't been 500 years, but it has been about 150 years. So again, you've had your chance. And what you find out eventually in the book is that it's none of the three brothers who murdered their father. It's actually a fourth illegitimate child who, married, who uh, murdered their father. And yet, nevertheless, it's the middle brother, one named Ivan, who is a rational, honorable college professor and author who feels incredible guilt over his father's death. And though he himself did not raise the knife against his father, The reason that he feels this crushing guilt is because he hated his father. And he knows that though not explicitly, he knew in his heart that it was his half-brother who was going to kill his father. And yet he chose not to think about it. He chose not to recognize it because he wanted his father dead. And so when his brother Smerdikov killed their father, it was really on Ivan's behalf. He didn't have the courage to do it himself, but he bears the guilt equally. And that's the same thing that's reflected here. You don't have to hold the knife to be guilty. What the Jews did that day is what we have said every day of our lives. I care nothing for you, God, and your rules. I am in charge. Leave me alone. They acted on our behalf. They they finally rid us of that pesky God and His rules always threatening us and bothering us. They acted on our behalf. And of course, even more than that, in acting in accordance with our malice and hatred of the Lord, the very reason that Christ died was for our sins. It was us who deserved to be upon that cross. 
If we had not rejected God's rules, there would be no justice to satisfy for which Jesus would have to die. As the hymn says, it was our sin that held Him there. Or as a different hymn says, what Thou, my Lord, hast suffered, t'was all for sinner's gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but Thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior, tis I deserve Thy place. Look on me with Thy favor, vouchsafe to me Thy grace. We are all murderers of the Son of God. We have all committed that crime of all crimes. The sin that began there in Eden and continues even to this day reached its culmination. When the Son of God was put on a cross, when He suffered and died, when He was pierced through His side unto death. And so we all bear this guilt. And so it says in Revelation 1.7, as was also read earlier, Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him even those who pierced Him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. We all bear this guilt. Jesus is the One whom we have all pierced. And yes, this is the the crime of all crimes. And that's what this passage depicts. It's this most egregious action. This very worst of all sins. Yet nevertheless, it is ultimately a passage of hope. That's why it's given. It is not a passage of condemnation. And it is the recognition of this terrible sin that leads to the people then mourning uncontrollably. If that was the crime of all crimes, it results in the weeping of all weeping when the people of Israel recognize what they have done. Yet again, this is hopeful. Now, The second point is the hope of mourning. And that's mourning as in weeping. M-O-U-R-N. That's what we see. That this terrible regret and anguish, weeping, it's a good thing. It's something that Israel should long for. And why is that? Well, in in this life, there's nothing really uh, more painful than weeping over the loss of a loved one. But there is something that would be even worse than that. And that would be if your loved one died, but you were so cold that you did not shed a single tear. That your beloved person was gone forever. And yet you had become so callous towards them that it meant nothing to you. That's a much worse state to be in than to weep uncontrollably for the death of your spouse, your friend, your child. And that's what Israel has been doing through thousands of years now. They have the greatest reason to weep, to weep uncontrollably, uh, the greatest possible weeping, yet they don't. So it's not a good thing that they don't weep. It's a condemnation of them of the coldness of their heart, the hardness of their heart, that they still hold on to the very evil which sentenced Jesus to death. And so the hope, though, is that one day the Lord is going to break their heart. They will no longer be so cold. They will have a heart of flesh. They will understand what they have done. They will love Christ. And in loving Him, they will then weep uncontrollably, realizing that they victimized Him unlike anyone else in history. And this leads to, yes, it's the the weeping of all weeping. And look at the beginning of verse 10 though, and we can see how this starts. How does Israel finally learn how to repent? How do they finally weep over their sin? It's the Lord's action, not theirs. This all starts because God says He will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So see that that causation there. 
God gives His people a spirit of grace, and that spirit of grace then asks for grace. It asks for mercy. The only reason that anybody asks for grace and mercy from God is because God has already given them grace and mercy. The person without grace and mercy is the person who says, I'm fine. I have no sin that needs to be forgiven. I hate God and His rules. I was right in doing what I did. But the person who humbly confesses to the Lord that they are evil, that they are wicked, and that they need God to help them and to forgive them, that person is a person that the Lord has already begun acting on. And so that's first of all a reason for none of, that's a reason that we can never boast of our salvation. The only reason that we feel the weight of our sin, that we love Christ, that we can repent is because the Lord has given us that. It's not because we're more sensitive or religious or good people. No, we're all just as wicked. And secondly though, it it reminds us that if you do that, if you seek the Lord's grace and mercy, be comforted that the Lord has already given you grace and mercy. That's the only reason you were able to do that in the first place. And so take comfort from that. For the rest of uh, verses 10-14, to really what it is, it's a, a description of the depth and the breadth of Israel's weeping that they will have when they recognize their sin and when the Lord works on their heart. And if you look at verse 10, uh, going into verse 11, it's these uh, increasingly desperate descriptions of what, their me- of what their weeping will be like. It gets more and more intense and sorrowful. Uh, the first phrase there in verse 10, it's that they shall mourn for him. And the word mourn, uh, it's what we would use too. It's what you do when a loved one dies, when your child passes away. So it says that's what Israel's weeping will be like on that day. It'll be like a loved one has died. And then it takes it a step further. It says they will weep bitterly over him. Uh, the Hebrew phrase that's translated weep bitterly, uh, that's a phrase that you would never want to be applied to yourself. It's applied to two of the most miserable people in history, Naomi and Job. They're the two people in the Old Testament who weep bitterly. That is, weeping bitterly is the kind of weeping you do when your whole family has died and you have lost everything. God says that's how you're going to weep someday. Like your whole family has died, like you were Job, like you're Naomi. And then it goes again. Oh, I, I, I skipped one actually. If they will mourn for an only child, it's like you had one precious son or daughter, and that child is gone. That's how you'll weep. And then the last part of verse 10, as one weeps over a firstborn, they'll, they'll weep like their, their first most valuable child has died. And indeed, that will be fitting because Christ is the firstborn of all humanity. He is the very best among all of us. Indeed, He's the only good one among all of us. Among all the people who have ever lived, He is the only one who is pure, the only one who is actually good, the only loving one, the only wise one, and yet we killed him. And someday we'll, we'll completely understand the weight of that. That we killed the perfect Son of God who was only ever good and kind and just. And it was out of our sin that we hated him and delivered him to death. The final description of the weeping is there in verse 11. And it is uh, somewhat difficult to understand. It says that on that day the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadar Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The difficult, there's two main interpretations uh, of this verse. One would be that it's referencing some kind of annual 
mourning festival that they had for the deceased King Josiah, who died prematurely in battle in Megiddo. And so uh, there seems to be evidence in the Old Testament that they did annually mourn the death of Josiah. Um, There's no evidence that it happened in Megiddo, but he died there, so it makes sense. Uh, The biggest difficulty with that explanation is that uh, that would have to mean that Hadad, Rimon, is some kind of location in the plain of Megiddo. Uh, but there's no evidence anywhere that there was such a city called Hadad Rimon. The other explanation uh, would follow the path that there is one known use of that phrase, Hadad Rimon, and it's the nickname of the god Baal. Uh, the, uh, the Babylonians referred to Baal as Hadad Rimon. And in the worship of Baal, it was a common thing that every year they would have this worship uh, idolatrous ceremony where they would all weep uncontrollably, mourning the death of Baal. And then uh, sometime later, he would uh, rise again. And uh, the worship of Baal, though it's, there's nowhere indicated that it happened, specifically in uh, the plain of Megiddo, namely this kind of festival where they'd mourn for his death every year. Um, in the Old Testament, there is a lot of actions, activity, cultish behavior related to Baal, that happened in the plain of Megiddo. Ultimately, the original audience, they would have understood this verse very easily. They would have known what Hadad Rimon is, and that would have been that. Uh, For us, our difficulty is that we're not certain if there was a place named that or not. However, I do take the latter interpretation, and the reason is it just seems to make more sense argument-wise. That God has been giving these most extreme descriptions of weeping and mourning, it doesn't seem really to fit that then he would compare it to uh, an annual corporate mourning for a a dead political leader, though he was a very good guy. Perhaps that was it. I think it makes more sense that the Lord is referring to that idolatrous mourning ceremony that some of the people of Israel would do for Baal. And of course the problem there is, well, why would God be comparing this righteous good mourning with this pagan activity? And I believe the reason God says this is precisely to condemn what Israel was doing. He says, right now you do that futile, idolatrous worship of Baal up in Megiddo, where you mourn, and it's a waste of tears, and it it hurts my heart when you do that, as you spurn me. But I'll tell you what, one day, those futile tears that you right now spend on that false god, someday they're going to be put to a good purpose. Namely, mourning your actual sin. Mourning that very idolatry. Someday I'm going to turn your heart around so that you will no longer mourn for Baal, but rather you'll mourn for the Son of God who did die, who did actually rise from the dead. And that will be a great sign of their repentance. That that was a description of the the depth of the mourning that will take place in Israel that day. Now let's look at at the breath. And that's in, in verse 12. Basically, God says that every single person across all of Israel is going to weep. And that's not everybody in general. No, every last individual. And he describes that by first saying the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves. David, of course, the house of David represents the royal line, the political life of Israel. Then it goes on and it says the house of Nathan by itself. Uh, Nathan was one of the descendants of David. And so what it seems that God is saying by mentioning the house of Nathan is that... uh, the current king of Israel, he is not of the house of David. So God seems to be demonstrating that the king in that day 
will be of a different lineage than the current king. Um, and then he says, the family of the house of Levi by itself, of course, that's the priestly family, the, the religious life of Israel. And then it says the house of Shemai uh, by itself. And Shemai was also a descendant of Levi. And so it seems to be a similar thing as Nathan and David. And then verse 14, not to leave anybody out, it's everybody. The religious leaders in Israel, the political leaders in Israel, they might be at conflict sometimes, but not in that day. Everyone's going to be united. Those two houses, and then every last individual in Israel. And it says that everyone's going to do it by themselves. That is, there's not going to be this big get-together um, where they all mourn for what they've done. If they did that, you know, there's probably going to be some virtue signaling that happens. I want to show how sad I am about what I've done. Maybe some people will get caught up in the moment as a bunch of other people weep. No, the grief... The sorrow that the people of Israel will experience in that day will cause so much shame that they'll say, I'm not even going to go outside. I'm just going to go to my room by myself and I'm going to weep. I'm going to weep like all of my children have died. Because I finally understand what my sin has been. What it's meant to the Lord. He came to us. He loved us. And yet we killed Him. Because we hated Him. That is the depth of the morning. And this is indeed what we are all waiting for. Even us whom the Lord has already given His Spirit such that we have grace, that we can ask for grace, that we confess our sins, we can repent. Nevertheless, even our repentance is imperfect. And even while we're confessing our sin to the Lord and saying, Lord, please help me not do this anymore, in another part of our heart we're still loving that sin and still holding on to it. We still know in our hearts that though we might be as sincere as we can be right now, we're probably going to do the sin again. And so we, along with Israel, we all look forward to this day where we will have perfect repentance. Where we no longer have to say like Claudius, bow stubborn knees and heart with strings of steel. Rather, we will have that heart of flesh perfectly. We will completely understand what our sin means to the Lord. We will hate our sin completely. And in that, of course, we will have Complete freedom. Complete union with the Lord. And though this will be the greatest weeping that's really ever overtaken the world, it will be of hope. It will be a hopeful weeping. Because the Lord has said, Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And again, you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, You will not despise. The Lord will accept that repentance. That prayer for mercy. That weeping over their sin. And so it says in verse thirteen, or in chapter 13, verse 1, that on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. God will hear their prayer and He will purify them. He will forgive them. And so it is of hope that we look forward to this day when all of our sin will be forgiven, when we will recognize the depth of what we've done, and we will mourn and mourn and mourn, but it will be the greatest of mourning, the greatest of weeping. For it will be what we ought to do. We will finally know the truth of our sin and of the Lord's sacrifice. And we will be forgiven. We will be one with the Lord. The reason that this is going to happen to Israel, though they've been unfaithful for thousands of years, the reason that someday, though, God is still going to save them 
It's because God is faithful. He made His promise to Abraham that He would save His descendants. And He has reinforced that promise again and again. And He will not abandon that promise. Even though there have been thousands of years that have passed, the Lord still will save Israel. And again, the reason is not because Israel has been good, but because God is faithful. And so know that as a fact. And then take comfort in that yourself. Because the same faithful God of Israel is your faithful God as well. If you are a child of God, there will never come a time where you sin and you just keep on going. No, if you are a child of God by His grace, He will always give you a spirit of repentance again. He will break your heart so that you will recognize what you have done. And so take comfort in that. And if you ever come to a point in your life where you are not broken over your sin, where you know that you are doing something wrong, but you cannot mourn over it, we'll be very afraid in that day. Because the mark of a Christian is not that we don't sin, but that when we do, we repent. We mourn. We weep over what we've done. And when that comes, when you feel the weight of your guilt, remember that it's not a bad thing to weep, to mourn over your sin, to repent. It's a good thing. That is the sacrifice that the Lord is looking for. Those are the people that He will comfort. It's never a bad thing to recognize the depth of what you've done. It's a good thing. And so do that. When, when we sin, we're prone to minimize it. And write it off as not a reflection of our character, but just a mistake or the result of some kind of external forces. There's no need to do that. Be honest. Recognize what that sin says about your wicked heart. And then confess to the Lord. Weep over who you are. He knows who you are. He was never deceived. And recognizing that and confessing that is where you will find peace and comfort from the Lord. And finally, a word about our, our own personal holiness. Yes, though it is only by a, a work of God, a supernatural work of God, that we can repent of our sin and be forgiven. That is, of course, the farthest thing from a license to sin. Your sin is what caused the Son of God to die. The culmination, the result of your sin is His death. As the hymn says, you who think of sin but lightly nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. You wonder what one little lie means, what one act of pride, what one lustful thought is. Look at the death of Christ. That's what it is in concrete terms. It's rebellion, hatred against the Lord and His rules. It's telling Him that you want nothing with Him. How could we engage in sin knowing that that's what sin is? That's what it means to the Lord. And yeah, you can sin, but the way that it's going to be forgiven is that one day you're going to weep over it like you've lost your children. Is that a good thing to engage in? A very action that someday you're going to regret immensely? No. Yes, this is a passage of hope. Whenever we sin, we do have an advocate with the Father. The Lord does give us repentance and we can be forgiven, and that's wonderful. But at the same time, this is also the greatest uh, encouragement, motivation to run from our sin, to be dedicated to our Lord, to please Him, such that we would not do that which led to His death. We would not do that which will cause us to weep over someday. And again, the Lord has given us this grace already. He has already peered, poured His Spirit into our hearts, and so we can turn from sin. You are not resigned to this kind of disobedience. 
You can please the Lord. You can live righteously. And so let's ask the Lord that He would give us the strength to do that this week. Lord, above all, we confess our wickedness and our evil. We were not there on the day that Your Son was delivered up to death. But what the Jewish leaders did that day, what Judas did that day, what Pilate did that day, is in accordance with what we have done to You our whole lives, Lord. We have disregarded You and Your authority. We have wanted to be left alone. And we thank You, Lord, that You have already poured Your Spirit into our hearts such that we can, though not perfectly, understand what we have done and repent over our sins. Lord, please help us do that. If there is anyone in here who has not repented of their sin, who still holds on to their hatred of You, Lord, please break their heart. Give them the repentance they need. Please help us all see the blessedness of mourning over our sin such that we would embrace it, we would accept it, so that we can receive Your grace and forgiveness, Lord, which You abundantly supply to all of us because Your Son did die for us. And being pierced, You did satisfy the wrath that we deserved. Please make us more grateful for that. Please always keep Your cross in our minds such that we will understand the nature of our sin and we will be motivated to be more dedicated to You and to be conformed into the image of you. In Jesus' name, amen.